Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 265, and I had a conversation with John Fusco. This guy is incredible, gotta say. So prolific, fascinating, interesting, funny, just a nice person all around, grounded, just really dug his vibe, you know what I'm saying? Uh, He is a screenwriter, producer, executive producer, creator, uh, musician, author, I mean, creative just pouring out of him. Movies like Crossroads, Young Guns, Young Guns 2, Thunderheart, The Babe, uh, Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, Hidalgo, uh, The Forbidden Kingdom, Marco Polo, I mean, come on, The Shack, The Highwayman, just... Wow, what a what an epic uh, list of, of films. I'm sure if you are a living, breathing human being on the planet, you have seen at the very least one of those films, but likely multiple multiple of those films. Uh, he has written his his fiction uh, includes Paradise Salvage, Dog Beach, and Little Monk and the Mantis, a bug, a boy, and the birth of a kung fu legend. John has a new movie coming out called The Wind and the Reckoning that sounds incredible, and he talks about that as well on the show. Uh, Lots going on with this guy. So many projects. I don't know when he sleeps, if ever. Uh, We chatted about all sorts of stuff. The creative process, his life, uh, our viewpoints on film, and some of his movies. It's so strange, and I said this to him, actually, in the episode, that it's so wild seeing a movie... And, you know, understanding that this movie is great or whatever. And then years later, talking to the person that that wrote it. It's always so cool for me to to have that experience. And it seems to be happening more and more, which is fantastic to. uh, It's that thing. It's like the people you surround yourself with, you know, it rises your level. Um, You want to surround yourself with greatness so that you can rise to the occasion. And I feel like being around all these super creative, brilliant minds, you know, it stimulates my brain and uh, it makes me want to work that much harder and achieve that much more. So it was a really, it was an exciting conversation for me. And uh, again, a really good human being. And I think even if you're not a creative person or a screenwriter or any of those things or a musician even, that there's something really deeply connected about this person that I think will uh, will be something that everyone responds to. So that being said, the usual stuff, Hey Human Podcast, can be found on Instagram and Facebook. You can find my personal Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter under Susan Ruthism. Email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. I love to get your emails. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts because it really helps and it's a great way to support the podcasts that you love. So not just mine. I mean, rate and review all the podcasts you love because it's really helpful and and it helps push it up through the algorithms that uh, we all play to, <laughs> the algorithm drums that we all play to. To find out more about me, you can go to susanruth.com, and on there you can sign up on the mailing list. 
And of course, this podcast has its own website, heyhumanpodcast.com. And on that website, you will find a links page that is an easy, breezy way to find tons of information on every guest I've had on the show. A one-stop shop, if you will. So definitely check that out. And there's also a store on that heyhumanpodcast.com website that you can get merch. Another great way to support the podcast is by wearing a t-shirt that says Hey Human on it. You know, I mean, because then somebody goes, hey, human, where'd you get that shirt? And then they, you say, oh, I got it from this podcast. You should listen to it. See how that works? It's very cool. <laughs> if you're into music, check out Susan Ruth under Spotify and iTunes. I have four records. The most recent, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Uh, thank you for listening. Be kind to each other. Be well. Take care of each other. And uh, I'm excited for you to hear this. Here we go. Hi. Hi there. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm John. Hi, John. I'm Susan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Susan. <laughs> I see that we're both surrounded by books. They're good friends, aren't they? We sure are, especially these yeah. days. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Where are you right now? Um, I'm at my, my home in uh, northern Vermont, up in the mountains. Oh, nice. I bet it's beautiful this time of year. Well, this is a tricky time of year. You know, it's like we, we call it mud season because it's starting to, to warm up. So you get one day and it's 60 and you're out in your shirt sleeves and then you get a blizzard. <laughs> it warms up and melts. And, the, you know, we live down eight miles of dirt roads. And so it all turns into mush. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Hey Human podcast. Uh, great to be with you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, our mutual friend, my mentor, uh, John Velasco, connected mm -hmm. us. Love John so much. Yeah, John is, you know, a uh, a legend. Um, he is a legend. Although we'll never know it. He's so humble and, you know. I know. Such a yeah, wonderful, wonderful man. I mean, when it comes to the music industry, his... his uh, depth of, of knowledge and experience. I just love to get him going and hear his stories. <laughs> uh, he's got great stories. I love him dearly. He's a dear friend. Uh, he yeah. has, I keep telling him he has to write a book and he says he can't write one until everybody dies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he's seen it all. <laughs> oh man. He's got stories. Anyway, that's, that's him. We're here for you. Uh, oh, I yeah. I always I like to start uh, every one of these conversations with uh, discovering where a person came from. So where'd you grow up? What were you drawn to the creative path immediately, or is that something you tumbled into as you got older? Mm -hmm. Well, I was um, I was born born in um, a little uh, rural town in Connecticut which I know can sound like rural in Connecticut can sometimes sound like an oxymoron. But um, this was uh, uh, back in the days where um, there were some, some real uh, kind of back roads areas. And I guess there, there still are, but I had a, a wonderful idyllic neighborhood that I grew up in with a lot of, a lot of woodlands. And I grew up playing with you know, wildlife. I never didn't have a pet dog until later years. I always had a raccoon or a fox or something. So, but um, my, my first um, uh, real creative love was filmmaking. 
and, um, and, and I would say uh, filmmaking slash writing. And we had the, the wonderful medium of, of eight millimeter film back then, Super 8. And so my mother used to generously let me borrow the family eight millimeter camera and I would write scripts and recruit kids in the neighborhood. I'd hold auditions and I'd make these <laughs> short little films. And that, that started at 10 years old. And, um, and so, and it was something I knew that um, I, I just felt it then, that this is what I want to do. And um, it was a bit of an anomaly uh, in the area that I came from because um, there, I, I didn't know anyone else who shared that, that passion or that dream. And most of the adults around me were like, you better get over that real fast because it's not going to happen. Even your parents? <laughs> Your parents too, even though they were giving well, you the camera. And my mother, the one who gave me the camera, my mom, she was the only one. And she used to tell me, you know, don't worry, we're going to find a way to get you into Mickey Rooney's acting school and stuff like that. And so, <laughs> but it was like going to Mars, really. Yeah. I love that you had auditions for the kids in the neighborhood. They must have loved that. They, well, some did. Some still hold it against me. They said that I was a, a tyrant of a 10-year-old director. I actually had a megaphone and that I, I got a hold of. My dad was, um, was in the uh, scrap metal uh, auto salvage business. And so I've come across all kinds of – that's you know how I got a little editing bay. That, you know, you'd find things in trunks of cars. So you know, I had megaphones and stuff like that. But – uh, yes, it was it was a, a really um, a, a wonderfully creative time as a kid, and I and I had you know I had my my mom and I had one just one teacher out of the entire like middle school experience, who because she read my stuff, and I had a lot of teachers think accuse me of plagiarizing because there was such a discrepancy between my writing and my math. And this was back in the days before we got into stuff like learning styles. And, and so it was just like, he, you know, he, he's failing everything else. But then he comes in with this poem. And where did you steal it from, you know? Do you remember any of your first uh, screenplays from when you were a kid? Do you in remember? Fact, they the still stars? have the, the films. Oh, you do? Oh, that's fantastic. Yes, I do. I do. I, I, I have to say... Um, I did adaptations of the old universal classic horror movies. So, you know, I did, I did a, a Wolfman. I did my take on the Wolfman. And what I did was I dyed cotton balls to the color of my hair. And we did stop motion with the super eight and I applied them. So when you look at it now, it's like, it's kind of, you know, jerky and stop motion, but it kind of works. And, <laughs> then, That's fantastic! You know, I, I love did, that. Did the bride of Frankenstein, <laughs> and I cast my cousin Scott as the bride. And halfway through the making of the film, he decided he just he couldn't take being in a dress and playing the bride anymore, and he bailed on me. So we we aborted that 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 film. But I did you know a bunch of those. Um, I did some. Uh, <laughs> Hong Kong style actioners. Uh, so I was just sort of exploring my, my movie loves and doing it, doing it myself. And it was the most exciting creative thing. And as I said, I had, had found a, a eight millimeter 
editing bay. Um, it was, you know, a splicer is basically. So I was splicing my own films and ex experimenting with, with splicing. So when I, years later, when I, through the roundabout way, got in through the back door of NYU film school, um, one of my first courses was uh, the, the wonders of super eight filmmaking as an experiment. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, yes. it, um, yeah. It's so That's much fun to talk about super eight. You know, there's, there are a lot of people who just like scratch their heads when I say it. And I also, I always say, well, it's what, what video would be, you know? Um, I know like a lot of filmmakers from my generation, um, uh, did the same thing. Sometimes I'm amazed. It's like, I mean, well, Spielberg's, you know, he's an older generation than I am, but not a, not by a whole lot more. But like talking with him about our childhoods, I'm like, are we like brothers from another mother? Because he was the same, the same. Yeah. Uh, had the Super 8 and just loved the smell of film, um, loved the editing process. Uh, yeah, I, I was hard on those neighborhood actors because I was, you know, would rehearse. And I want that performance. I just, I remember this one girl in the neighborhood and I was trying to get, she's being pursued by Frankenstein's monster. And she was supposed to run into camera, like, like with a look of terror. And she ran in and stopped and she decided to do her, it was like, maybe, you know, she was ahead of her time with selfies and she decided to do the beauty shot right in close up, you know? So <laughs> I, I never let her live that down. I said, I, I will never cast you today. In any That's so funny. <laughs> Do you, it's it's cool because I imagine that as you're shaping your understanding of the way a script is for the kids, you're learning personalities of humans because uh, that's so important in writing, right? You can't write oh, yeah. characters that are one dimensional. They have to they have to be all these different things. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of writers, they get into the trap of. Uh, the voice sounds like the same person in every character. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. Now the um, it was a, it's a great experience because you know, I mean, children, um, especially like you know during that age of ten, twelve, there's a real magic, a creative magic going on, and um, you know that's why I love reading. Um, Stuff by Ray Bradbury, you know, oh, yes. Zen in the Art of Creative Writing, and he, he emphasizes the importance for, for, you know, we grown up writers making a living at it, you know, never lose touch with that childhood wonder and passion. And he describes that rain barrel that's always filling up. And I continue to go back to that rain barrel. And the stuff I do today comes from ideas that uh, passions that formed at a really young age yeah have you written a script about that about being a kid and making a film and something happens and yeah have you written you have well well i wrote a novel my first novel was called paradise salvage and it's about a kid who finds a super eight camera in the trunk of a junk car at his father's salvage yard i love it but he also finds a dead body uh, of course he and, does. <laughs> and um, yeah. so it's a, actually a multi-generational Italian-American novel. Um, my, my dad um, was Italian and the, in, in um, the state of, or the tri-state area, Italians tended to um, control the scrap metal industry. 
And so it, it put a, put me as a young boy going to work there in contact with some interesting characters, if you know what I mean. And so I um, I was I would see things in trunks that weren't there. You know, I would I would when different characters would come up and they're controlling the docks in Bridgeport, you know, and I want those crushed cars delivered at the docks. I'm like, okay, that's that's a Corleone character. And so I drew on the my my memories from that time to create a novel and I wrote it in the style of magic realism. So it's all from the point of view of this 12-year-old kid who wants to be a writer and filmmaker. That's awesome. So, yes, answer the question. No, I didn't write a script. I did a novel and um, maybe someday it will be a film. I bet it'd be great. So you're in film school in yeah. New York. Mm -hmm. I read that you won a couple of big awards. It was apparent to people around you that you were kicking ass. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I, had, I dropped out of high school um, at 16 and it was directly related to my frustrations um, with trying to find an outlet for filmmaking in my dreams and just being told, you know, and then, you know, in high school, it was like, okay, you know, we don't know what to tell you, you know, you, you, why don't you go, you know, business administration, there was just like no um, concept of, 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 of breaking outside of the box and, and leaving the community and going off mm -hmm. and doing this, this stuff back then anyway. Um, so I left school and I channeled my creativity into writing song lyrics and oh. music. And that's mm -hmm. how I got into music. And so yeah. my high school was basically being on the road as a, a road musician, singer, songwriter, taught myself a few instruments. And those experiences gave me a satchel full of, of creative material. I was constantly writing when I was, and I was on a Southern States tour with a band. Um, so I saw a lot and documented it. And then at one point during that experience, I just hit rock bottom and, and, you know, I remember having this epiphany on this bus in the middle of South Carolina, one of these like long, you know, endless drives. I'm looking around at these musicians crashed out and, and I'm like, is this where I'm headed? Is this really what I'm, what I'm going to do? And, I, and so I, I sat back and did this kind of meditation and tried to get in touch with my inner core. I'm like, when were you really the happiest in your life? When did you feel like you knew who you were, what you were meant to do? And it went back to the filmmaking. So I made up my mind in that moment that when this bus gets back up north to play a show, I'm bailing, I'm going to night school, I'm gonna get a GED, I'm gonna fight my way back in. I'm going off to like UCLA or NYU and, and I'm going to go after filmmaking and I'm going to do it even if I have to die, I'm going to do it. And so that, that was the moment. And yes, so when I got into to NYU, based on my writings, because I, I got a GED, got in, um, the first thing I wrote um, was like set down in the South where I'd been traveling and it was just, it, and it got a, a, a really positive reaction um, from, from the instructors and, and from the students. And it won a national award and um, won a car. Nissan used to sponsor something called the Focus Awards, where first prize was a brand new Nissan. And they flew you to LA and you were wined and dined and all that. And um, so I thought, wow, my God, you know, my first shot out with my first student screenplay. But um, 
I signed with an agent out there. I signed with William Morris Agency. Um, and I thought, okay, this is going to work. It didn't sell, but everyone was interested. We want to see his next. We want to see his next. So I went back to NYU, tending bar nights in the film school and started my second script. Finished that, got the same response. That was called Crossroads and entered it in the same award and it won first place again. So I got a second car and I was able to sell <laughs> cars to, keep them, to go to school. Yeah. Oh my but, God. But this time Columbia Pictures bought the script um, at the award ceremony. Um, you know, and um, this has been the day where, you know, the spec script sale was a big, big thing. And so I, I, was able to go back to New York and go to the bar I was working and give my notice. And um, I went to I went to the chairman uh, at the film school and said, I'm, I'm leaving because my movie's going into production. Walter Hill's directing. It's shooting down in the Mississippi Delta where I was hitchhiking three years ago. And I'm leaving. And they said, but you've, you've actually accrued so many credits that you're not that far off from your degree. And we want you to represent, you know? So we'll work, uh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> we'll, we'll work with you. Um, so they designed all kinds of creative internships with Columbia Pictures and, you know, independent study with Walter Hill. And, and, and you know, it wasn't a cheat because going down on the set of that movie was like my, my best last year of film school, hands on. Absolutely, yeah. So I got, I got my degree from Tish and... I got my first movie made and it was, I always say it was the crossroads 1986, not the one with Britney Spears. Yeah. And um, it was Ralph Macchio. Ralph Macchio. Yeah. And Robert Ralph. Johnson. Yeah. I just, yeah. Talked to Ralph. I, I just talked to Ralph again after 35 years, two days ago to congratulate him on Cobra Kai. And, yeah. Uh, he's killing it. He's killing, he's killing it. it. I love that guy. So, um, yeah, I love so it when the good ones, <laughs> he's so happy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, he, yeah. He's such a a good good man. It always, always was. And um, you know, uh, so that was that was my first movie. And then, um, really, um, it was kind of off to the races. And yeah, it, that movie Crossroads literally had its thirty five year anniversary uh, last week. So that's how long I've been doing it, and I, I haven't stopped. And and um, I'm busier than ever. Yeah, you know, uh, I've seen without. It's always funny to me how life works because clearly I've seen. I, I want to say nearly every single one of your movies without having any idea. Huh. You know, because when you're watching a movie, you don't. At least before I became a writer person, it didn't occur yeah. to me like, oh, somebody wrote this. <laughs> you know, you just go and you watch yeah. a thing, and and yeah. Uh, right. so yeah, like Thunderheart. I loved that movie. Yeah. Loved that movie. Young Guns, are you kidding me? Like these are <laughs> the babe. All these movies to me are such a um, and not just the bowl of smoke, but even the Forbidden Kingdom, another one. It's like these are these movies that really they're just a little left of center that to me <laughs> they so stood out. Do yes. you know what I mean? So, yeah. well, yeah. That's a compliment. Yeah. Yes, it is definitely a compliment. Yes. Um and it's it's interesting because and I just watched the Highwaymen one because I hadn't mm -hmm. seen that and yes. that's on Netflix everybody along with probably lots of these movies uh, it's certainly on Amazon Prime I'm sure a lot of these movies a lot of the older ones yeah 
probably mm-hmm. the, those yeah. places to find them. Um, and I loved, I thought Highwaymen was great. And the, it's subtly, obviously it's a, a bit of an intense subject as you know, the, the search for Bonnie and Clyde by these guys and legendary mm-hmm. guys, but there was humor in there, this subtle humor that just sort mm-hmm. of bubbled right under. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. It was great. I love, um, you know, and I think maybe you'll remember it in, in Thunderheart too, because you could take those two um, and they're both, they're both kind of, you know, rural Americana thrillers. Um, and, and, but there's humor, you know, always bubbling under and the, the humor that, that I respond to is, and it's the only humor I can write is humor that comes out of duress that comes out of these situations. And yeah. I'm so happy to hear you say left, left of center, because, um, I, you know, I had, um, several screenwriting peers back at the beginning of my journey who um, were, were so uncompromising artistically and like so turned off by Hollywood and, um, and just kind of like, Oh no, I, I would never do that. I'm, you know, and um, you know, they're not making films today. I'll say, I'll tell you that. Um, and, you know, look, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think that, what I always saw was I wanted my stuff to, I wanted eyeballs on my stuff. I know that this is the world. This is, this is Hollywood. Um, but I have an independent creative spirit and it's the kind of stuff I love to do. But I also, I know how to, um, to make it accessible without stretching or without being untrue to myself. It is sort of right from the get go. You know, this is what this, this movie is. But it's going to be left of center because it comes from from the soul, and I, it's not cookie cutter stuff. Um, but I, you know, I believe there's a way to. From the time I was making the short films, I still I still have these notebooks that my mother saved. I would do posters. I did my own one sheets and those the log lines, and I was fascinated by that stuff. So I didn't never looked at it as a compromise. It was a dream to make Hollywood films from the time I was 10. And that's what I'm doing today. There's there's also something about, if I may be so bold as to tell you what I see, uh, but there, there's a thing about your characters that I, I recognize. A lot of movies in Hollywood, the characters are extra. You know what I mean? They're extra. So people are like, oh, I wish I could be that person. Whereas in your film, in your writing, I feel like any person could be like, that's that's me that's mm-hmm. me that's it's a yeah. huge difference worlds apart mm-hmm. to me yeah. at least you know i um i think you know I've, I've never really lived in la um i did for a very short time after you know that first when columbia bought that first movie and i was on the first plane to la hey you know here we go but very quickly i looked at it and i said okay so you know be careful what you wish for. You know, <laughs> this is what, the, what what Hollywood is. This is the, the thing. And I stayed there long enough just to get a sense of it and knew that it was was not healthy for my writing. And um, I so I wanted to go back to the real world and write and live with real people. And so the, the input that I get um, 
day to day, you know, our everyday people. And those, yeah. those are the characters I, I, I really, I really love. I'm really, really drawn to, to exploring. Um, so yeah, I, I, I appreciate that observation. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm real excited about um, the next movie that I have coming out. And um, we, uh, uh, believe it or not, this is, this is so interesting because here we are talking, I'm talking about, you know, no, it's, you know, it's so go to, go the Hollywood route and do it. This is my first 100% independent film. And we shot it during lockdown in Hawaii. And um, it's called The Wind and the Reckoning. And it's a true story set in 1893 about a indigenous Hawaiian uh, cowboy. Um, because, the, the, you know, in Hawaii, I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever uh, been aware of the Paniolo culture. They call them Paniolo. They predate our Western cowboys. They're Hawaiian cowboys riding, you know, barefoot. And they, they absorbed a lot of Spanish culture. They created their own music style. But there was a legendary Hawaiian Paniolo um, living out on Kauai during the time of the overthrow of the queen. And there was a, a, a corrupt government um, persecution of native Hawaiians. And they, they used a pandemic to their, to their benefit. And it was leprosy at that time. So they were rounding up Hawaiian lepers and shipping them to Molokai. And this, this one guy shot and killed the sheriff. And it triggered what would become, at the time, the largest manhunt in American history. And so it was, a, I wrote it as a real big epic. And we, we weren't able to, to get it made because there's you know, something about, um, well, it's, it's, it, it can be viewed as a difficult subject, but because of the pandemic, the state of Hawaii um, knew of the script and they said, why don't you, why don't you shoot it now during pandemic? Because it's all outdoors and we'll put some money in and help you. And, and they put a little bit of money in. We're really grateful. We put a little bit of our own money in, but we shot an epic in 17 days for $2 million. Whoa, really? Yep. Well done. I'm so, <laughs> I, just, I just looked at the cut of the movie and it is killer. I am just, I'm so proud of, it's in 75% native Hawaiian language. Oh, it's wow, like cool. beautiful to look at, but it's just a gripping story with amazing performances from Jason Scott Lee, and Lindsay Watson, oh. and the, the entire crew were native Hawaiians. So it was um, uh, such a, an amazing experience, but I, I bring that up because you're talking about those characters who are extra, right? You know, this was a, a a quiet, you know, Hawaiian rancher who rose up to become a superhero. Um, it's, but it's a true story, and it's been a buried story for so long. I mean, when you hear something like that and you say, wait a minute, how come I never heard of that, right? That's the stuff, like when I did Hidalgo, you know, with Viggo Mortensen, um, finding those, those uh, remarkable stories that have been swept under a corner of the rug and they're out there. And that's the, the, the exciting thing. And because there's, there is a, a, a kind of some prevailing wisdom uh, out there or, or, or a prevailing idea that 
all the great stories, you know, have been done. So let's do King Kong, King Kong and Godzilla one more time, right? Right, right, right. But there are some really profound true stories. And that's, that's, I've built my career on that. And I'm either, well, the highwaymen, you know, whenever everybody heard I was doing Bonnie and Clyde, they're like, are you nuts? That's like the greatest movie ever made with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, Arthur Penn. You know, how are you going to top that? So I, I have nothing to do with topping that. I'm showing the other side. I'm showing the side of the Texas Ranger, Frank Hamer, that was vilified in that Arthur Penn movie when, in truth, he was a real upstanding lawman who, who was known for defending um, African-Americans. Yeah, he was big. The, the, he tried to push out the KKK. He yeah. did, yeah. Right, right. And so I wanted to give him his day in the sun. And so that's another. So it's just like it, it might not seem obvious. It's like, wait a minute, Bonnie and Clyde, that's been done yet. But what's the other angle on it? What's the, yeah. other angle, the story? So that's the stuff that excites me. You know what I also noticed about your films uh, is that you allow real time, you allow space which I think a lot of times writers and movie makers, they might be in the movie making, not the writing, but they, they're, they're rushing through everything because they understand that people's uh, patience level is at an all-time low, but you really seem to, to understand the importance of space and time, which is cool to see. It's like jazz, right? You know, it's like sometimes it's the notes you don't play and the words you don't say. And yes. I mean, like if you look at the Highwaymen, I'm thinking of the scene with Woody Harrelson and his little his, his grandson, and it's like during the Dust Bowl area of, era of Texas, and they're sitting mm-hmm. inside and they're eating rolls and they're hungry. And I remember like the, the the scene on the page. It's like the you know the wind blows across the dooryard, the screen door slaps shut twice, and a dog barks in the distance. The fork clinks, a knife is set down. End of scene. I just I love that stuff. I love it's like okay. the, I, well, like the Horton Foot school of of screenwriting, and you know, he wrote um, Tender Mercies with Robert Duvall and Trip to Bountiful. Um, mm-hmm. He actually lived up directly upstairs from me when I was going to NYU. He lived in a little apartment up above me, and I used to hear his typewriter going, his old fashioned Royal going at five o'clock in the morning. And I, I wonder why I wonder if that's why I write every day at five. But I I wanted to meet him so badly that I went to the doorman. I made a deal with the door and I brought the doorman some some cookies from Little Italy. And I said, you know, would you, when Mr. Foot comes by, would you just give me a signal? And one day he did, and so I got the, held the door for him, Mr. Foot, and I, I walked about 20 blocks with him. And um, he became something of a mentor, um, but but his style of writing, if you think of of those films, um, uh, Tender Mercies and Trip to Bountiful, and the, uh, he he did uh, adapted a few Faulkner films. He's all about the the, the understated um, vibe. Yeah, it 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 leaves room for the ghosts. I feel like yeah, yeah. for the. Oh, I love you know? that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's it's really true. It's true. Yeah, which I love. A lot of your films, almost all of them, they seem to have a 
well, they have this historical thing, you know, many are, have a Western thing. You seem drawn to the, uh, the Asian, you know, historical badass, you know, thing, but the shack seems to stand out. What made you drawn to that film to write that? Well, it's a great question. Great question. The, um, there's, when I talked earlier about Ray Bradbury's rain barrel that fills yeah. up, that you keep taking that ladle and those passions are, are, are in there. And, um, and when you, when you lay it all out, sometimes you find this kind of red thread that, that runs through. And I feel it, that there's definitely a thread that runs through the native American Western motif and the Eastern, you know, uh, the, the, the uh, Asian philosophy you know, right. along it, it lines up with Taoism so much, and and then you, if you look at the, the, well, the, the samurai, the samurai, and the cowboy, the like, cycle of influence between Kurosawa yeah. and Sergio yes. and John so Kurosawa. So I've been fascinated by that, and so so when I do something, you know, like Forbidden Kingdom, it, it's it's a western, and then then my westerns are you know lone swordsman sagas, you know. So there are things that connect. And, and at the heart of it is a spirituality and, and a, a soulfulness. That's it's really, I, that, that access is code has always got to be there for me. What happened was with the shack as I was approached and they're like, this is like, you know, the, the second best selling book other than the Bible or whatever. And it's, it was on the, the New York times bestseller list for forever. It might still be there. I don't know. And, um, I was like, but it's this Christian book, right? It's like, and they're like, yeah, yeah. And I said, why aren't you going to like a faith writer? You know, because, you know, I vision quest up in the mountains, you know, and you know, yeah. I, I, I fast in the Black Hills or, or I'm, you know, in, in Mongolia with a shaman, you know, and they're like, that's exactly why we want you to do it. Because we feel that there is a spiritual vibe throughout your work. And we, mm -hmm. we, we want you to try to find a way to make this, to get it out of the box of faith film and make it more accessible. And that intrigued me. That really intrigued me. And um, I, I read the book and I loved the idea that it violated perceptions mm -hmm. of, of, of who was God, what did God look like? And God did not, you know, it was not some being up there who looks like Gandalf. Um, the uh, they were open to bringing in a Native American. God got at one point appearing as a Native American elder, helping this guy on his journey. But at the heart of it, really, it was about it came down to this theme of of forgiveness and, and releasing your hands from around someone's throat, so you're not poisoning your own soul, and and just the question of. How far, you know, how far can something go before you you can no longer forgive it? And and so <clears throat> there's you know scripture in there that addresses this, but it also it, you'll find that in Buddhism, you know. And uh, um, I so I I really you know it was a challenge. I, I just I, I I wanted to take it on and, and and see if if I could do it. And um, I, I think that. And, and back to your point about the, like, the the red thread that runs through the material. Um, I love mythology, legend, and lore. And in many ways, I viewed that as 
because there were some people who came up to me and said, so are you a holy roller or what? You know, I'm like, no, you know, I, I, I wanted to explore this mythology, you know, and um, sure there, there is, there's history and, and truth underneath it. And there is a degree of biblical truth and the stories of Jesus, you know, but, um, but no, I mean, you know, I mean, it, the movie did really well at the box office, but critics were like, I mean, they were, they, they just, they took it so literally. They're like, are they insulting my intelligence trying to tell me that, you know, it's like, no, man, this folklore, you got to roll with it, you know, and get the message, draw out the message. But so, yeah, it, it, that, that will probably always look like an anomalous thing on my credit sheet, but um, it was a good experience. Yeah. I, I read the book. I actually haven't, I don't think I saw the movie. Who, who played the characters in that movie? That might Sam Worthington. Uh, Sam Worthington was the lead guy. Octavia Spencer. I did see it. I was like, I feel like I, I remember a movie with Octavia Spencer. She's really nice. I met her here in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, she, was, she was wonderful as Papa. She was she's a heck of an actor. Yeah. Yeah. She's a heck of and, an actor. Uh, my, uh, my buddy, Graham Green. Uh, who's Native American actor, you know, who was nominated for Dances with Wolves, and he he was in Thunderheart. Yes. Uh, yeah. You have a lot of crossover actors. I yeah, I, I, I really do. I've done two with Vigo. I've done two with Kiefer Sutherland. Um, uh, it's so funny. I just... There's also uh, the Six Degrees of, of Kevin Bacon in there, too, because, yeah. you know, uh, Kevin Costner, who was in Dances with Wolves, Woody Harrelson, you know, like... Oh yeah, there's, there's all that too. Yeah, they yeah. they did so well with that movie um, with the Highwaymen because you know Woody Harrelson playing a perfect um, the emotion that that Kevin Costner couldn't quite say aloud that was just so seething beneath him. You know, yeah. it was be yeah. beautifully it was beautifully acted. I thought. Well, it, something crazy about that is that so it took me 17 years to get that movie made. Really. And Yep. But um, right after I had um, had the first draft ready and the, that was the case where the first draft took longer than usual because I, I, I took several different approaches to the story before I finally found that it was more like Lonesome Dove than, than, than an actioner, that it was really about these two guys in a car tracking Bonnie and Clyde for 62 days. And that they were more like characters from Ride the High Country who time had passed by. They had, you know, patrolled the border on horseback with Winchester and now they were chasing gangsters and they didn't want to, but these modern gangsters were killing people left and right. But um, when I, I finally got that angle down and we got the script out, the producer, Casey Silver said, so who do you see as the two guys? And I said, Maybe like Newman and Redford coming back together for the, the trifecta. And he laughed, he laughed and he, and then he said, oh, you know, we, you know, we won't get them, but that's a great place to start. Well, we sent it to Redford and he loved it. And he said, don't send it to Paul because I want to do this so badly. And Paul, you know, he's at an age right now where it's like, ah, oh, I really don't want to leave Connecticut. Um, <laughs> Redford got on a plane and took the script to him and, and kind of read it to him. And the next thing I knew, we had Redford and Newman 
doing the highwaymen and it was the the biggest story in hollywood at that time and it was like oh my god you scored no one ever thought they'd come back after butch and sundance and the sting and do one together and it was perfect so i was doing rehearsals and read-throughs with newman and redford and, wow. and then then paul got sick and he did not recover from that that was you know he he he, he wouldn't make it and so um we and, and I have to say, Paul was one of the greatest human beings I ever had the, the privilege to to be around. And, and you know, I was running a nonprofit Native American horse conservancy at the time, and and I, I had no support on it, and I was in over my head. And he he stepped up and and helped mm-hmm. me out. You know, just just by hearing me talk about um, beautiful guy, but we couldn't couldn't find the next combo you know, that would work. So, because we, Redford was all in, but we said, well, Redford and Tommy Lee Jones, Redford and the Redford, nope, nope, nope. And it was just sort of like, where do you go from Redford and Newman? So it took 17 years of that script gathering dust on the shelf for Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson to become the right age. <laughs> and I am so thrilled because- They were if, perfect. If I could go back and push a button and go back, I would still do it. I would still say Woody and Kevin over Redford and Newman. While I was watching it, I I thought it's funny that you bring up all the the Butch Cassius. So I was like, God, they have such they remind me of those two so much. There's just something about it, <laughs> and so that's funny that you bring that up because I yeah. felt I felt the the essence of that in the in yeah. their delivery. Right. Yeah, you know, if you're going to have two guys stuck together in a 1934 Ford for two hours. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you got to dig down into that relationship. And they were kind of like a, uh, you know, a married couple. Yes. Together for yeah. a long time. And, and um, yeah. you know, and you look at those areas to have fun with, you know, there's, there's t- you know, time has passed them by. There's now this new thing called the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. And, you know, they're using old tr- cowboy tracking systems. The guns, the guns of, that the, you know suddenly someone's firing you know a hundred rounds in a second or whatever and that that was new for them yeah yeah oh yeah yeah and um you know there was we- there was a line that uh that that was um it used to be was it it was it used to be you you had a talent and you got famous for a talent but now you know it, it was a, it, to me. It was such a reference to modern times of like you don't have to have talent to be famous. Anymore. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you just have to kill people. Yeah, because you just have to kill people. Yeah, Bonnie was writing um, poetry and sending it to the paper and getting yeah. it. Yeah, and they were celebrity. I mean, they they were huge celebrities. They were like the, they were like the Kardashians with you know semi automatics and um, yeah they, that they, last they, scene with everybody grabbing at them and wanting to be a part of yeah. something that was surreal to see but to me it spoke so much of modern day celebrity you know and john lee hancock who directed it and did a wonderful wonderful job um he always when people would ask us when we did screenings they said you know so how much did you exaggerate that scene at the end when they towed the death car through and people are trying to get a clip of bonnie's hair and he said we actually had to play it down otherwise you wouldn't believe it it was like beyond that and um, but then also the ambush of Bonnie and Clyde, we shot it on the exact same road where it happened in the same exact ditch. 
And well, I get these shivers. Oh yeah. It's you know, and it was in Louisiana and Bienville Parish and swampy. And we're shooting in the summer. And um, I remember the morning we were doing the ambush. I was like walking along that that road and looking in, and you could just you want to talk about the ghosts. And I looked down the road and I saw Kevin. And he was dressed in character and he had his gun and he was just standing in the middle of the road, just staring and staring and staring. And so it's tricky with actors because there's times where you see, leave them in their zone, right? But he was down there so long, I wanted to make sure everything was okay. So I went down, I said, Kevin, he, like, snapped, he like, snapped out of a trance. And he said, man, he said, see that corner right there? Hamer was looking on this morning, the morning, that morning, he was looking at that corner with anticipation, just waiting and just knowing they're gonna come around that corner. And he heard that engine and he knew they were coming. And I'm just processing what that had to feel like. And um, So there was, uh, um, you know, a, a filmmaker friend told me, they said, I really loved how you, did you shoot that at the, the the real spot? And I said, yes. Did you, why do you say that? Did you know? He said, no, I didn't know. But it was such a, um, an almost anticlimactic setting for the shoot. You know, you would, yeah. think, you know, they're going to, you know, Arthur Penn had a field and cornfield and it was like a Terrence Malick type, you know, he sees that there was just something almost mundane about the sight of this road that made me say like, why would they shoot it here? You know? Yeah, I really loved it that scene as well because even though Bonnie and Clyde had killed all these people with little regard, there was still this feeling of of reverence over that scene. Uh, it makes me almost tear up of like this understanding. Again, it's that fine line of being on yeah. right and wrong, you know, and yeah. that I could feel it. They they played it so perfectly. I could feel this this reverence about what they were about to the gravity of it all. It was not yeah. live. It was not like, Oh, let's go in and do this thing. And we're here. It was none of that was there. It was just so. We've got, to, we've got to stop this thing now. And, you know, um, we and don't an like understanding that they have to take a life in order to do it. The, 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 that, that whole thing was going on to me. I could feel all of that around it. You know, I, I think if you asked me to like, and I, I never thought of this till just now in this moment, as you talk, if you had asked me to like of the 16 movies I've done or whatever, you know, put to pull one clip from one movie just to have, you know, to, to show a piece of writing that you felt um, you were really pleased with the way that it translated from the page to performance to the screen would be when Kevin Costner goes into the gas station with Clyde's father mm. and, and Clyde's father talks about his little boy growing up and, and says, you know, the, the law dogged him and they ran him and, and, and he says, you know, all he did was steal, steal a chicken. And he's like, well, you know, maybe that was the, the, you know, the thing that started the criminal life. He said, well, maybe he was hungry. Like we were all hungry. And he said, you know, I won't argue with that. And he goes to leave and Clyde's father stops and says, mister, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. You got to go kill him. You got to go. You got to put an end to what my boys, you got to end this misery for everybody, for him, for what's happening. He's so deep in right now. And, yeah. and he, 
there was no way he was going back to prison. There was no way in the world. I mean, you know, he killed a guy in prison. He he, he killed guards. He killed it. He killed the guy that was uh, beating him and raping him. I, I believe, right? That's right. Yeah. That's, that's right. And so he just like there was no way. It was just like a, a and and Hamer was a a man killer. You know, he was from from the old school, from the old days of, you know, he had 17 bullets in him. I know. He he was like a throwback to like a Wild Bill Hickok. And they pulled him out of mothballs in the 30s, you know, to go take on. And it was because of of, you know, the Texas Rangers had been disbanded by Kathy Bates at that point. Not by Kathy Bates, but Ma Ferguson. (laughs) (laughs) And and. um, and so because of, of how they, they did what the FBI, they did in 62 days what the FBI couldn't do in two years, they reinstated the Texas Rangers. Right. Allowing for uh, that guy with the mustache to, to have a career. Oh. <laughs> Walker, Texas Ranger. <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> uh, well, you mean, you mean Chuck Norris? Yes, there it is. Chuck <laughs> Norris. Oh, the, yeah. Well, you know, and it's it's also kind of, even the Texas Rangers. It's controversial. Law enforcement's all you know. It's it's. It was really interesting because the movie came out right at it, right before, you know. Um, the Texas Rangers is what they meant by a well-regulated militia. Honestly, yeah, you know. yeah. yeah. So it was just touchy, touchy stuff. Um, yeah, uh, but um, but. At that point in time, and Bonnie and Clyde, um, I think it was really important for this movie to to show that number one, you know, give this guy his due because his family and I be, I became close with his son, who was mm-hmm. in his nineties, Frank Hamer Jr., who, who opened up the treasure trove of papers, boxes, you know, uh, crime photos from the time, and trusted me. Uh, after having lived all those years with a resentment toward Hollywood, and he and his mother sued Warner Brothers and won a large settlement out of court for character defamation. And Mrs. Hamer, Gladys, lived off of that the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. But his the, the kids, the grandkids, the descendants were ashamed to, to, to they never talked about who their great grandfather was because they were ashamed of a lie because of the way he was portrayed. And we invited the Hamer family to a screening, private screening for them in Texas. And they were crying. They were I crying. bet. And yeah. The young kids felt. And we asked uh, Travis Hamer, who is in his 40s, you know, you know, probably older 30s, later 30s, you know. So we hope, we hope that we represented this okay. And he started to talk. And he, then he just burst into tears and his kids were like, and he's like, it's for them. He said, my kids don't have to, after this movie, they don't have to be ashamed of being a Hamer. Hmm. And so, you know, that in itself, but also, you know, to really, to, to portray Bonnie and Clyde as the killers that they were. And um, yeah, I think Hamer in your movie says, you know, at one point, talks about the savagery with which Bonnie flips over one of the police officers. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that's a, a controversial incident because there are some who will tell you that 
that didn't happen. She didn't do it. It was actually the person who witnessed it couldn't really see from where they were. And so it was Henry Methvin who did it and all this. But we had um, we had some great historians working with us. We had we had papers, paperwork, and we had stuff that we really we got behind that. And we knew a lot more about Bonnie. We had police reports from other incidents in which she opened fire with a machine gun on on, uh, on cops. And, yeah. And I think we know now enough about killer couples to know that the women are just as culpable. Uh-huh. I mean, I think yeah. we just didn't know back then, right? That's didn't understand. Yeah, 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 they didn't understand the pathology of that, of killer couples. She wanted to be a movie star. Yeah, she wanted to be famous, right? They would purposely leave their camera with with these posing. She would have been the Instagram. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's why I think that line you had in there was so appropriate about about being famous, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. This is kind of an odd question, but I feel like you will be down with it. Um, Has Hamer visited you to thank you? Uh, well, Frank Jr., he, he passed away. No, I mean, senior. I mean, has he visited you? Oh, you said you do like... Oh, you, you You mean spiritually? Yes. Yeah, well, you know, in um, in, in in some ways, I believe he has. I think that, you know, um, you know, it was uh, unburdening the family name and, and having, you know, I, I, along with spending time with Frank Jr., I worked with three different Bonnie and Clyde historians and I tr- rode the, the, the highways with them. And I wanted to go to every single site of every killing and see, you know, how it went down. So I went to these places where, where, where Hamer um, lived and did his thing. And, you know, I think that anytime I work intensely on a historical character, they visit me during the process. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would say definitely dur- during the, the process, I, you know, I, I felt the presence, especially once, you know, we, I really found the, the, the working form and, and I got his voice. And, um, but uh, I think I feel him in the presence of his family uh, in the way that they've, they've gathered around and, and, you know, we've become, Friends, they invite me to the Hamer summer reunion every year. Ah, I I'm love that bar- bar- barbecue. And um, but I'm just so pleased that uh, you know it, it did well for Netflix. It was one of their their top ten most watched original movies um, in the top six for that that year, and it's still out there. And so people are able to to discover this. And working with Kevin and Woody. Um, was incredible. So unlike a lot of, because I know a lot of writers, they sell their scripts and off they go. And then whatever the filmmaker, the director, or the producer does, they do. But you, sounds like for the most part, you really are hands-on in there. Yeah. You know, my, um, my, my first movie, Crossroads, um, I had an experience where, you know, I, I went to set as the screenwriter and I experienced that age old, uh, cliche that you hear that like, you know, they, they, they take your script, you know, they change it, you know, they, they do what they want and they, they want you out of the picture. 
and um, and then there's the, the old addendum to it. And what do they pay you? A fortune. And the idea being, come on, we pay you a lot. Now go away. And yeah. Just, and I just, the, my first movie was semi-autobiographical. You know, I wanted to be there. And, yeah. um, but I, I got the sense that um, I wasn't welcome there. And I made up my mind when I left, I will, anything I write, Going forward, I'm going to attach myself as a producer and that I will be on set. I will be involved with casting and that um, because because of the nature of the stuff I write. When I come along on a project as a producer, what I really am is a, a historical consultant, a technical advisor. And I always tell writers, you know, make sure if you're doing something historically, make sure you're the best technical advisor, better than the historian's you've conferred with, you know, and so that they want you there. And I think, and, and be a team player. You're not there to look over the director's shoulder. You just, um, I, so I experienced that with both young guns, you know, I was writer producer and the director loved having me there and he loved having me work with the actors. You know, he's like, okay, Kiefer's driving me nuts with these questions. Would you go talk to him about that? You know? And um, what I think what happened was, um, the word got around and I think directors started to, to realize that um, it would be to their advantage to have me on set, that I'm backup, that I'm a support part of a support system. Mm -hmm. And so it got to the point where sometimes I produce, I write and produce other times like the highwaymen. I write, I'm not a producer, but um, the director wanted me there. He loved having me there. And I sit with him in video village and I, I know how it works. You know, I'm, it's, I'm not directing it. You're directing, but um, I will. I will offer up some observations and take them or leave them. Or you know, you know, this is basically what I was intending with this line. I don't think it's landing that way. Would you consider this version? Yeah, let's go get one like that. Then, of course, all of that prepared me to be a showrunner in TV. And the showrunner is. When you've when you've been doing when you've been a screenwriter since 1986, being a showrunner is like the perfect writer's revenge. <laughs> because, because now now you're you're sitting behind the directors, and you're and you're saying get another one, okay? And then or we got it, we're moving on. You're the boss. The writer is finally the boss in those situations in this new second golden age of TV. So yeah. Although, although the the the, the um, commitment and the intense uh, requirements of the job will kill, can almost kill you, um, it does it does um, put you in in the driver's seat, and so you can really protect your vision. And but even even doing that, I still I still work with the directors like I do in features. You know, it's like, you know I want you to get your vision there. You know. What about an animation? Because that's a whole other ball of wax. And you've done a few animated things. I did one. I did one one animated. Uh, animated oh, I thought you did the, uh, the, the, was, the uh, spirit, spirit telling of the Cimarron. And, yeah, I thought you did a, 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 a another one to that one. For some reason, I thought there were two on your IMDb. I must be mistaken. No, no, Maybe one no, was music. One, um, um, hmm. 
I know that there's there's a new there's a reboot spirit reboot or sequel coming out this June that I have nothing to do with. Um, hmm. Somebody yeah. may have tagged you in it then by accident. I, I, I think, think there's so. a couple on there. I, I think so because I actually started getting some some I actually got into a social media firestorm over something because someone had posted my photo saying, "You want to know why our beloved spirit was ruined? Look who the writer is a white guy." And oh. So I had to remind them, hey, I wrote the original spirit. I fought for Little Creek being a Native American lead in that. And I have nothing to do with this this new one. So, yeah, you're tagged in it. So you've got to check your IMDb. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, but but that oh. animation's a four-year, four-year undertaking. Um uh, Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg had called me and had offered me. They threw one sentence at me. How would you feel about writing an animated movie about the history of the West from the point of view of the horse? Love it. And we're all in. And they said, and I said, so what else do you have on it? They said, nothing. You go do what you want to do. And then we'll take a look at it. And they, they responded to what I did. I, I actually went crazy and wrote a novella with music in it. And that, that lit the fuse for for spirit and um, I love it because it was one of the last of the real hand-drawn traditional animated films. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yep. Um, you know, I know they went and did a TV series for very little children, you know, spirit writing free on Netflix. And I just, so I, I hear, you know, I'll be walking on the bike path and some young mother will say, we love your spirit writing free. I'm like, the little kid's like, he made spirit. I don't want to. Yeah, I, I didn't. I don't, I don't have anything to do with the baby cartoon. I, I, actually, my, my, my first draft of, of spirit was more like animal farm. It was very, oh. dy- it was very, very. Dystopian. I had, I had Buffalo all singing a song I wrote called Manifest Destiny just before they're slaughtered. And, Oh yeah, <laughs> but um, I because I, I just seized the opportunity and, and said, "Well, but but so over four years we we dialed it down, um, and but it's, it's still a beautiful film. Brian Adams wrote a great soundtrack. Hans Zimmer, amazing score. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. It's so exciting. I, your work is really lovely, and what a what a gorgeous life. What a gorgeous life to be able to dig into these histories and these people and tell their stories. And it's lovely. It really is. It's, it's a real, it's a a blessing. And, you know, and it's, and I'm so glad that on that long bus ride through South Carolina, that I did that soul searching moment that turned me back toward my first dream and made me realize you can't listen to people. You can't listen to the naysayers. You know, you, you, you've got to, you know, when you're on the beam, you know, when you're off it. And um, to be able to, to be making the living that I dreamed of doing and, and going deep into these worlds and every one of those worlds becomes a part of, of who I am. Um, I'm just, I'm so grateful. And uh, every day I wake up and it's just, it's, it's a blessing. And it's not lost on me. I just, uh, yeah, and, I, and the fact that you take such care of the people and the, and telling the stories like you were mentioning about in Hawaii or the indigenous peoples, you know, and just I think that's important, and it's important for writers to hear that it is something that can be done. 
you don't have to write stereotypes. You don't have to, you know, do what you think yeah. the masses yeah. want to hear. You can be true to what human beings actually are and, and create gorgeous, beautiful pieces of work. And that's important like to get out there. I appreciate that so much. And I, th I think we're living in a real exciting time right now because, you know, <clears throat> a lot of the stuff that I, I did, um, I was doing because I felt like um, stories were, were not being represented <clears throat> that needed to be mm -hmm. represented. And the, the storytellers from certain cultures were not getting the opportunities. And now we're living in a time where they are. And yeah. I'm so happy about that. And I'm mentoring several different writers. Um, and, you know, in the Asian culture, Native American, African American, um, and telling them, you know, this is this, you've got the time you, you tell these stories now, and I'll help you navigate the system, because I know how and I'll get behind you 100%. But it's your time. Let's get your voice out there and your story. And so I'm as exhilarated um, as anybody right now about it. And, you know, there's a lot of bumps in the road. Everybody's kind of finding their way and everybody's touchy and it's super sensitive, but it's going to, uh, it's going to get its sea legs and the work we're going to see, see coming up is going to be storytelling like we've never seen before. We're going to go deep into, into worlds and hear voices that have just been suppressed for too long. Yeah, it's an exciting time. I agree with you. I agree. Yeah. John, thank you. Tell people how they can find you. And I will put links to all this stuff on uh, on Hey Human Podcast to make it easier for the listeners to just go to one place. But how can they find you if they want you to? You can find me on Twitter, uh, John Fusco 12. John Fusco 12 on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, Instagram. And um, I, I'd love to uh, love to stay in touch and share what's going on. I'll have a lot to report about this new Hawaiian movie and other stuff coming up. And yeah, that's um, exciting. What's the title of that film? The wind and the reckoning. That's right. The wind and the reckoning. Yes. That's exciting. Stay safe and well. Thank you for having me on. You too. Thank you. And thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Yeah. Thank you. Rate and review. Hey human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.